Welcome to podcast number 22 of Practical Wisdom from ACP Financial Advisors, a monthly program about creating and operating a successful financial planning practice. We're a presentation of the Alliance of Comprehensive Planners, known as ACP, a community of tax-focused financial advisors operating under a unique retainer-based fiduciary business model. I'm your host, Ken Robinson. On our show today, confident, client-centered conversations. One of the challenges of fiduciary financial planning is figuring out client communication. You want your clients to understand your own confidence in your professional advice, but you don't want their eyes to glaze over from excessive jargon. And you want your clients to tell you more about their financial lives rather than less, but they might be afraid of wasting your time if they think of you as just a professional specialist. How can you talk with your clients in a way that helps you provide the greatest value in your professional relationship? What's the right balance between silently listening and actively emphasizing your professional expertise? And what if your tools and processes themselves could be set up to help you have the kind of discussions with your clients that they and you would most appreciate? Our guest today is Chip Simon, CFP, founder of Taconic Advisors, Inc., with offices in Poughkeepsie and Saugerties, New York. A fee-only financial planner since 2002, Chips served as ACP's board chair and was the 2019 recipient of the Stuart Farnell Award for Exemplary Coaching. Chip, so glad to have you with us today. Hello, Ken. Glad to be here. Glad to have you. So, you have some definite views about communicating with clients and with prospective clients. What are some of the biggest problems you see in the way our profession deals with client communication? Oh, golly, let me see. I guess you alluded to it in your introduction. You know, one term is, is, is lingo. And we might throw around the jargon and the lingo like uh, your asset allocation and the Monte Carlo analysis, this and these financial concepts and, and the clients just have glazed over eyes like deer caught in headlights. And I think it does them, well, first of all, I, I, I think it does them a real disservice. And I, I remember when it comes to communication, years ago, before I entered the profession, I worked for a writer, an advertising copywriter. And the thing that he taught me was, before you start writing, you have to think of your audience first and put yourself in the shoes of the audience. And, and that's what writers, advertising writers do. I would say um, that I try to do that as a financial advisor as well. And so before trying to spew out all the, the, the great things that a planner thinks about what their client has and what they should be doing, it would really help to put yourself in the client's shoes and think about where they are as far as their knowledge of what they have. So not, not only the lingo, this gets to the it gets to the problem of have you given the clients enough enough context in order to start off the conversation? That's as you know in in ACP we use the the financial life cycle. We plot for clients where they are on a wealth curve. I like to talk to clients about their financial personalities and have an open conversation that is non judgmental and actually highly appreciative of all the ways that they think and feel about money, which is a wide ranging conversation, which is one of my favorite conversations with client. It's the initial conversation. And so it's, if you can lay that context, and it's all about establishing a context for, for, for trust in the relationship to help clients feel, uh, feel organized. 
So that's so in terms of communication, I think the lack of lingo and setting up context for clients is important. And then also, um, I'm against the idea of false precision in, in, in relationships. I, I say to clients, I, I think of the goals that you're trying to get to in financial planning as being like a, a bowling alley with, and the ball's going down the alley. But you know those kitty bumpers that they set up on the side? So the ball's going to go down, it's going to bump on the side, and you're going to, you're not, we're not going to try to roll the ball over each of the individual spots on the lane to get a strike. We're going to keep you moving forward on the goals. There are going to be things that come along. You're going to go back and forth, but, but you're going to be contained and in, in a real good position to, to reach those goals. So it's it's the idea of of precision like that can be exemplified by here's what the software says, here's what the Monte Carlo analysis says. Uh, I, I have to confess in the 18, and, and I should tell the listeners, I mean, I am, I'm retiring this year. This is the end of my career. I guess, I, I guess that means I can say whatever I want. You know, I have, I have never really had a conversation about a safe withdrawal rate. I've never had a conversation about a Monte Carlo analysis. And my clients are feeling very, 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 very secure and comfortable in their retirement planning. And I think that that comes from having a broader view about what they need to feel comfortable but not making them feel overly precise. I will take exception. I, I do believe in precision on the tax return. If you're doing a tax return, you, you must be precise on the tax return. But when it comes to a lot of the financial planning, getting people to their goals, you know, I, I, I'm just against the, you know, giving the implication of false precision. We can think in more general terms, I think, than many uh, than many planners do. And I think that goes back to maybe I, I talk about. Some planners just might not feel confident. They want to hide behind the software, make the software, make them appear smart. But clients don't want you to, I should say my clients anyway, and I, I should qualify this, that our, our average client is at about 2 to $2.5 million net worth on average. And they tend to be lifetime savers. But in general, I find client relationships are all about um, helping clients get organized, helping them avoid the big mistakes, and helping them feel confident about their decisions and reducing anxiety. So that's the basis of what I've been doing financial planning with. So that doesn't require a lot of precision. It requires communication in in clear terms for the things that they want to know about, but not showering them with information about things that they don't need to know about. Yeah, absolutely. And when Chip, when you talk about not overemphasizing precision, uh, not trying to be precise to the nth decimal point on something where that doesn't really matter, it brings to mind the system that. You know, we were all taught in ACP group instruction of the endogenous risk profile, which breaks down the equity to interest earning balance in five percentage increments. So if it's not 50-50, the next mark over one way or another is 45-55. And it frees us and frees the client, more importantly, from the tyranny of some computer program that may say, oh, the efficient frontier puts this at 47.2% and not 47.3%. Well, that's a foolish, ridiculous level of precision that's based on past numbers anyway. And the numbers that we're working with to advise the client are changing you know, in the middle of you know, every breath as we're having the conversation with them. So freeing them from the tyranny of believing that it's necessary to be that hyper-precise is uh, a value that I share with you. I think that helps the client to be able to climb off the ledge somewhat when they're really anxious about this stuff. And they don't need that level of precision to achieve their goals. Yeah, I think I, 
I, I remember one of the things that our, our founder, Burt Whitehead, said way, way back, and there are a number of things that he said that really stuck with me throughout my career. And one of them was, he said, you, you must involve the clients in, in the planning process. And so it's, it's much better to, when, when a client looks at something that you're uh, showing them, I think it's very important for them to look at that and say, yes, that's me or that's us. You know, it's not your software. It's me. That, that, that's my number. And I, I get that number. I understand that number because what clients think about in their mind is about my money. We could talk about asset allocation all we want, but they're thinking my money. You know, we're talking about these concepts. They just think about their money and is my money okay? So if you put it on, on those terms and speak now, in, in this case, your money is like this. And let's say, for example, in, in retirement, I break down the retirement conundrum into two things for clients that there's the money that you have to worry about and the money that you don't have to worry about. You don't have to worry about your pensions, hopefully your social security, other fixed payments and guaranteed payments. The money you have to worry about is the portfolio. That goes up and down. But even though it goes up and down, we have to try to get money out consistently for you, for you to live on. That's about as deep as I go into the financial you know, planning concept of, of what it means to, to retire and how the money's going to work. And they go, yep, they, they get that because they're thinking about my money. Where's my money going to come from? And they have it right. We have to be on their side is what it comes down to. So again, in whatever we show them, we're serving the client well if we can have them identify with what's in front of them because they're going to relax and be able to talk about it. And then you can talk about all the – it's just the big conversation opener and it's building the trust because they know that you get them and you're you're on their level. So. I think that's a key that you just described. They know that you get them. And if they – don't have confidence that you get them, that you understand what they're worried about and what they've come to you to stop being worried about. Uh, if they don't feel that you get them, they're not likely to trust the answers that you give them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is, so in in, in our firm now, it's, <laughs> I think we've actually got generation three now because we have we have my partner, Meredith, who you know, who's uh, who's in age 20 years behind me. Then we have a, a, a CFP. John just got a CFP. And then we have, uh, our other CFP, Michelle, who's in her late 20s. And so we've got a, a, a great you know, line of the generation planners. And I find that the, the communication thing that I'm teaching to the new CFPs, because they know the numbers, you know, them and the software can. I mean, we can't hold a can. It's forget it. They're just all over. The, they're terrific with the software. They, they know the spreadsheets. They know the functions. They know all that stuff. But when it comes to communicating the concept to the client, I said, just keep it really simple. I remember when I was, uh, and I always encourage, I, I, we've probably talked about this in, in the past, what a terrific program Toastmasters is in order to help people develop their communication skills. And in Toastmasters, I often use the lesson, just pretend you're talking to a, to a sixth grader. It's okay. They don't have to know that you think that they're a sixth grader and you don't. But when it makes you slow down, make the words come out slowly, succinctly with a simple concept, you're doing your client a favor, they'll, they'll let you know if you need to embellish it more. You still have to be prepared. But it's that that communication challenge. And I have to tell you, one of the things I love about the job is the communications puzzle and how to make that puzzle work. One of the things about the kind of work that we do that I appreciate the most is the variety of people that I get to meet with. And I've said many times how much I genuinely enjoy my client's company. But every one of them comes to us as a real living human being with all of the feelings that go along with money. And I believe that what they need to understand, even if they don't realize it themselves, 
is they need to be confident that we recognize how they feel about the situation so that we're invested in resolving their problem because we know what it's like ourselves to be worried about something and to have to rely on someone else for the answer. Well, yes. And that whole idea of getting that money personality, if you will, uh, out in front, again, that's, I mean, that that is very deliberate. Again, I'm very big on on measurement, but I'm not overly big on on precision, again, except for the taxes. So so to know where people stand in terms of money and how to filter conversations so that they can get concepts. And so you can establish a baseline because if we are financial coaches, how do you know that you're moving someone forward if you have if, if you don't know a starting point? And so even just filtering language, so as and, and you and I both know this from the ACP money personality model, but if, if the, we have the miserly personality versus a spending personality, a miserly personality would be happy to talk about a budget. Well, using the word budget to a, to a spender is an anathema. They, they hate to hear budgets because if you talk about a budget, you're taking away their fun. And spending personalities are really a lot of fun people. So you talk to them about a spending plan. But if someone is a miserly personality, you talk to them about a spending plan, they're going to fall off their chair. They're so nervous. So again, you have to understand the audience that you're speaking to in order to communicate the concepts and move them along in the planning process. So again, establishing personality and, and the baseline, that's the reason why money personality is the first chapter in Bert's book. It's the primary measurement concept before you start talking about the life cycle and those other great things that give context to the financial planning relationship that you have with the client. And of course, when the money personalities of a couple when the money personalities of the two people in a couple aren't the same as one another, it can present a, a challenge if one is more miserly and would love the idea of a budget, but hate the idea of a spending plan. And the other one is the spender and would be in exactly the opposite position of their partner. Maybe we need to go to something more neutral, like a cash flow plan that isn't a, a term that either one of them has thought much about and is neutral enough for neither one to be afraid of. That's some of the creativity that I actually appreciate about this approach to financial planning where we're doing what we're doing is we're helping people with something that happens to be in a world of numbers that doesn't mean we have to regurgitate numbers all the time in order to serve them as you've pointed out many times over the years just spewing numbers at them is in many cases a disservice <laughs> you you're, you're actually you're actually making me laugh because we have a <clears throat> one uh, dear long-term client couple retired and you know, the question was, do we move the bonds from 60% to 55% or what? And of course, they've got their distinct personalities about it. So we just said, well, split the difference. You know, it's 57.5%. They're fine with that. Now, you're not going to see that on any sort of fancy risk analyzing software, but it certainly works in the relationship. You know, so love conquers all, and they decided to just split the difference when it came to their portfolio allocation. But we can have a, we can have a very friendly and open conversation about that because we all get each other. And we're just arriving at the decision that makes them comfortable, which happened to be splitting the difference in that case. Because it is the couple's money. We do have to, one person might do all the talking, but you still have to remember that it is the couple's money. And you do have to take that into account. Right. And from the professional point of view, looking at that 5% difference in the bond allocation, uh, most of the time we can look at that and say, a difference of 5%, it's not going to matter. They are going to have the same retirement security either way, because there's no way to know ahead of time whether 
5% more in bonds or 5% less in bonds is going to work out right for them in the long run. But both figures are within the realm that's going to make them successful. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And interestingly, to, to take to this, and this this gets to a much, I'm not sure what the adjective is, but it's if it's a deeper level or a, a critical level, let's talk about the difference in personalities with, with a surviving spouse. And I have often seen it when a surviving spouse comes in, I still have that money personality conversation and have them speak for the deceased spouse using that deceased spouse's name, which you must always do because you help keep the memory alive when you keep when you use the person's name. And when you talk about that that spouse, they had their relationship. But one of the big things that happens in survivorship and, and grief over time is that the very foundation and sort of the ropes that held together that relationship start becoming untwined and new goals and directions are, are established for that survivor and decisions that they make on their own become different than maybe what would have been made as a couple. And that can create guilt and anxiety, but it's part of the process of moving forward. Typical example of, you know, the couple where he, he managed all the portfolio matters and he was a real stock picker. She's left with the survivor and she has absolutely no interest in that. And so, you, so she's really keen on, on you know, an in, in index portfolio, just getting that done, explaining that, but, you know, the feelings that can accompany that because it is a change, be a feeling of betrayal in the initial relationship. These are really important communication matters of a highly personal and sensitive nature when, when you're dealing with that portion of, of someone's life. And so knowing that you get them in the relationship it was, you get where they are now, and you, you can create a vision for where they may be in the future and help them move into that. It's an incredible honor, you know, working with clients on, on that level. It's, it's, it's the most, probably the most satisfying part of the work that I've done with my clients over 18 years. So. So I could imagine you having a conversation chip with a client in that situation saying something like, so you don't care to manage a portfolio of individual stocks on a day-to-day basis the way your late spouse did. Here's what I would recommend that you do, and we can have you well-balanced with a carefully chosen handful of broadly diversified mutual funds. There's far less to have to keep track of. It's not expensive. We'll help you choose the inexpensive funds. But I'm wondering if that's going to make you feel distant from your your late spouse. Are you ready to make that change? And I wonder, you know, what that conversation is like when, you know, when you've had that conversation, Chip. It, well, it, it depends on when they come in. If it's immediately after the death and, and someone's really raw. There, there's just just helping them through claim forms and, and doing the gathering of the money uh, is enough. Very often, survivors come in and they are ready to move on. I mean, they are they are quick students. I, actually, one of my survivors was a school teacher. The only client that actually reads her investment plan three times a year, just to double check and go back to it and, and remind yourself what's going on. I, a, a remarkable. But I think what they saw was someone uh, was a spouse who was hunched over the numbers on the computer, spending a lot of time in a, in a very solitary act, trying to uh, come up with a you know beating the market, doing you know great great returns and stuff like that. And they say you know reasonable returns, life's too short. Why wouldn't I want to do it this way? Indexing sounds great. I don't think I've ever had someone continue in, in that in that stock picking or sort of that uh, you know portfolio. They're willing to delegate. You know, the relationship they had was with the do-it-yourselfer, and in the relationship, they went along with the do-it-yourselfer. They probably told the the do-it-yourselfer, why don't you consider delegating? You go, no way. I love doing this. But on their own, 
they're they're definitely a delegator is what it comes down to. So, and of course, a relationship between a delegator and a do-it-yourselfer can be you know a match made in heaven. If the delegator is the survivor, then um, uh, simplifying things is one of the most obvious ways to take stress out of their life. Well, I, I, I will tell you, I've seen it many times when I've done one-time consultations or financial reviews, which you which you know of, and we have a do-it-yourselfer come in. Uh, let's call it he he the do the do it yourselfer was she the delegator was she really pressed for the consultation because honey I love you but I I'd like to go check it out with a professional and without fail without fail they come in they sit down for the consultation and his arms are crossed and and generally without fail by the end of the appointment his arms are relaxed she's smiling at him they're so happy he's so glad he did the consultation because it's just confirming with some advice but she just needed that little bit of assurance and know that things are okay because it's a it's a big transition the retirement transition for example so oh, it's again very very satisfying to see the couples you know love conquers all so chip you've talked uh, over the years about advisors making the mistake of wanting to be sure that they're sh- demonstrating to their clients how smart they are and when that's the wrong thing to do, and instead they should be making their clients feel smart instead. And talk about that. Well, yeah, I'm I'm big on. Well, I, I think it's sometimes it's the the armor that financial planners think that they need to wear, and how prepared they have to be to talk to clients about money. So I'm big on. I'm big on pats on the back for clients. So, for example, if r- real simple, let, let's say a client portfolio goes up $40,000 in a year. And it goes up, um, half half of that, it goes up uh, $20,000 due to the market and $20,000 due to their contributions. I give them a big pat on the back for that. I say, you know, your your money grew, but let's reward the behavior. Let's give you a pat on the back for the behavior because you're responsible for for, for half of the growth in this this year. Good for you. I, I did this example at one of our conferences where there there's a couple, I have great a great, very coachable, very, very coachable couple let me see. They're kind of in there. They're about eight or nine years away from retirement. And let's say they've got a million two and their goal is $2 million. And so if a client's that $800,000 away from the goal with say eight years to go at some reasonable return, you can say, well, look at $800,000 to go. Let's, let's hope that we get you there. Let's keep on working and saving. Well, another way to look at that is if, if you remove the saving that they have to do for the next eight years and just look at the money they have now, in that case for that client, they had done 90% of their life savings. What a, what a better thing to say to clients. You got eight years ago, but but you know what? Because the returns, when you have the larger portfolio, those returns and the exponential returns are really kicking in in the life cycle. The money is going to be really making money for you. You've done 90% of the work here. You've done terrific. So just understand that. It's a way of reframing that to give them a pat on the back. One that I think is really important that goes back to, I guess I'll call it couples therapy or couples relationships. Let's say we have a a couple comes in and they're talking. um, Let's say he's doing all the talking about the money that they have to worry about, you know, because he's the portfolio guy. But when you look at the money that they don't have to worry about, you realize they've got two social securities and she's got a really big pension from being in the school system for 30 years. And when you look at the foundation of their retirement, she's really the one that contributes to the foundation of that retirement, but she's the quiet one in the meeting who's sort of just the real steady Eddie or steady Ellen, I guess, who is there, who's nothing to do with the money and doing all the portfolio talk. 
it's really important. And I remember the conversation I said, you know, I just want you to say, you know, when it comes to, you know, most of this retirement foundation is based on her work. And she just very quietly said, thank you. Because, because you're recognizing, you're recognizing what's going in there. So it's, it's looking numbers as I learned in accounting, because that was my trending numbers are just representative of behavior and choices that people make. And so if you can look at that aspect of what's happening with a client relationship and make sure that you're doling out the rewards on both sides, and especially for the, for the quiet one, that you're bringing people along together, th- these are the key things in a relationship that are the trust building and helping the client relieve anxiety, involving them in the process, and by the way, having a great relationship with people. It's kind of common humanity, but it certainly makes a lot of sense to me. So, so throw, throw off the armor of financial planning sit there and just be willing to talk to your clients about money. I've often thought that if you just give a compounding of interest calculator, simply that and a napkin and a pencil, I can probably do a, a fair amount of the financial planning that has to be done with clients just by, you know, you know the sketch guy. Remember the sketch guy? Because he was doing the same. He was distilling things to sim- simple terms. And those sort of pencil drawings and, and pencil selling of concepts can be highly appreciated by clients and helps them get it and feel really comfortable. And don't think that you're not adding value by by talking to clients on that level. You don't have to show them all the fancy software to create a lot of value in their life and uh, and make them real happy to pay you. Yeah, the Monte Carlo analyses, the other you know clearly data intensive software packages, regardless of how they display their results. And I think heaven help you if they display it as a table of numbers that are you know changing year to year all the way through a projected date of their passing like that's something that you can know with any more certainty than what the stock market's going to do in the next 2 years and 11 months ultimately they what they want to know i believe is not what about my money i think it's what about me not just is my money going to be okay but on some level they know that money's a a servant to greater goals and the question they really want to know the answer to i believe is am i going to be okay and and where that overlaps with this subject called money that's where we add a lot of value is helping them see that the money part of your life is going to be just fine they often want to know that answer a lot more than they want to know why they want to know that we have a good reason for it they don't necessarily want to be able to explain the reason to somebody else I think that's a mistake that some of uh, our colleagues make. That's a mistake that I used to make was explaining things in so much detail. I am arming I am arming you to talk to your friends and justify having a financial value. No, yeah, they really don't need that. Yeah. In my case it was actually uh I am justifying my answer to you. I'm justifying the conclusion that I just gave you by showing you every step I went through to get there. And it took me really far too long to realize there's hardly a single client who has an interest in any of those steps because if they did, they'd be financial planners. Yeah, and I remember, you know, you're, you're, you're reminding me again of again Mr. Whitehead, and one of the, it's a statement he made again way way back that always stuck in my mind. And actually, it's a very it's a very pregnant statement. It, he says, you know, that the main financial planning problem that most people have is that they don't have enough money. I mean, I mean, it sounds a little, but you know, but there are many ways for people to not have enough money. Right. So think of that in behavioral terms. If they are overspenders, if they they could have a lack of after-tax money, they could have consumer debt. They might not have uh, enough liquidity for emergency funds or estate liquidity. They could be prepaying mortgages and have money tied up in loathing assets, or in or places where they can't get to it, or business interests. So ultimately, helping people 
answer that question about my money, they they have they might have wealth, but they don't have money. And helping them make that transition from wealth to capital or wealth to liquid money is actually a, a lifetime process that we have with our clients. But I always laughed about that because it was a very tongue-in-cheek, but he's right. There are so many ways for clients to not have money. And we have to examine all of this and say, no, you're fine. And when it comes to the investment reviews, just skipping to that, I, most of my investment reviews are, looks all right, and they go fine. Because they know that if there's something they need to know, they'll be told. But they're not going to be told stuff to just fill up the time. Hell, let's talk about the grandkids and whether you got your inoculation yet. You know, that's that's more what it's like these days anyway. Sure. Yeah, it, it strikes me that to establish the kind of rapport that is really the foundation of a client trusting your professional advice, we need to spend some uh, meaningful time interacting with them just like, you know, we're talking over a cup of coffee and, you know, getting to know who they are as people. And I, one of the most significant things that I learned early in, in my process of understanding the ACP methodology was those early discussions with clients are all about listening. It's not the time to show off what you know until they have decided they want a proposal from you for what your fee is going to be and what your services are going to be. And that's when you can start to get into some detail about how you're going to add value. Until then, it's 90% listening and asking questions and getting them to open up to you. Yeah. And and letting them know that you'll, um, because they will come in with a priority. And although we might have a certain way of doing things, being able to adapt, and our system's great about that too, you know, attack a priority can be real important. I mean, I mean, I remember one client, this is the story of a retired law enforcement officer in New York. And so um, his pension advice was probably given to him by his, his friends in the locker room. They said, what are you going to do? You, you just want to take a single life benefit. What? You want to die and then she still has your pension. She goes, marry some other guy and he gets your money. What? You want that? So of course he took the single life benefit. She has no survivorship in, in the pension and they come in and she knew that was a problem. And the first thing we dealt with was getting the life insurance in place so they could save more money and have enough money to cover the potential loss of a pension. So there are some things that are certainly top of mind. You do want to attune yourselves to that as part of that listing process that you're, uh, that, that you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. In the methodology you and I were both taught, Chip, that's to identify what's the spear in their back. What is it that they need your help to pull the spear out, the, the pain point that had them stop thinking about calling a financial planner and have them actually pick up the phone or send you an email. Something moved them from, this is a good idea someday to, I want to take action today. And finding out what that is may sound like a money problem, but it's very often just a crisis expressed in other terms. And understanding what that is gives you a you know an opportunity to really understand who your potential client is. Well, I think that the first phone call, I, I think of the purpose of that first phone call as a clarifying phone call. That was a concept from um, you know personal coach that presented at one of our great, fabulous ACP conferences in the past. And by that, I mean, uh, and, and I should say that I felt very fortunate because in my area, I felt that there was kind of a first mover status for being a fee-only firm in this area. The way that we would get a call would be clients would, they'd read their ARP magazine or something, they'd hear about NAPFA. They would go to the NAPFA website and say, yes, that's exactly the kind of person that I want to work with. Who's in my area? And that would connect to my website. So generally, if someone calls in, 
they've they've been to Napfa and they understand the concept of fee only. They're just looking for a local provider. Oh, looks like I'm one of the only ones. Guess that worked out okay. So then, so then the question is, so what what prompts the phone call? And it'll spew out because it's been on their mind. But let's say it's about retirement and. You know, we're thinking of retiring in six years. We've got, you know, the kids here and we're, we've got these things that we don't know. We need it to be looked at for a while. And so the thing to do to say to, to close the phone call is a clarifying process to say, you know, I, I, I get what you're talking about. Here's what's going on. Generally, people call financial planner when there's some kind of big financial transition because it's the transition that creates that spear in the back that creates the anxiety. The biggest one, the most familiar one that we know of, certainly in terms of the demographic, is the retirement transition. But there are lots of other transitions, like, again, loss of a spouse, a young accumulator. There's a, there's a young family. We're inheriting money, the Sud Money Institute idea. So in the transition, it sounds like we're talking about your, your retirement transition. What we want to look at in the retirement transition are, as in any transition, there are usually sort of three big questions or items we want to look at. First is, let's look at everything that you have, how organized it is. Is it all over the place? Is there too much risk, too little risk? Are there things that you should be avoiding? Are there terrible financial products you've been sold in the past we have to do something about? Any holes that we have to plug? So that's kind of, that's looking at the balance sheet, basically. And then for the transition, there's an income statement portion, which is we're going to look at your salary now, how you're saving. We're going to project to see if you have a sustainable retirement going on and fold in the income that you can count on later on and see how that looks going forward. So there's a, how are you doing now? How does it look going forward? And then there's one other element that's usually part of the phone call as well, which might be, we still have to get the kids through college. We're taking care of parents. We've got this $100,000 inheritance we don't know what to do about. So again, by saying, I understand that you're in this transition. Here are some of the common questions of this transition. And we're going to look at those closely for our initial get-together, in, a, in our case, a, a paid consultation. How's that sound? And on the other end, it's like, that's exactly what I'm looking for. Because you've taken their problem and you've distilled it by an effective communication with a process that they know they can walk through in a fiduciary setting and they're ready to send a check. And for those consultations, I would send out a contract. And it always astounded me that people would send in all of their financial information after a check, never having met me. They will completely disgorge their financial lives, including their tax return, to get ready for that because they understood that I get them and they're going to be in a safe environment to, to go through this stuff. Because I think of clients come in, usually they're, usually they're either a little bit nervous about working with someone or they've been bruised in the past. So they want to know they have a, a safe place to work in, which of course, you know, part of, part of our system and how we do things. But that's part of letting them know that you get them, just like you said much earlier in our conversation. We touched on the idea that the tools and processes that you use can reinforce the genuineness of the conversation that you're having with your clients so that you know they're relating to you as a, a person, not just a technician. And I think of things like the description of the investment process that isn't unnecessarily or unhelpfully hyper-precise. I think of the concepts of the money you can count on and the money that you can't that you can't be so sure of that are really easy for them to understand what are some other examples in your practice chip of how the systems that you use or the tools that you use reinforce that idea that make it easier for you to communicate with your clients I, well i love our and by the way i'm a i'm an old tools fool uh, in our in you know we have the younger people use the comprehensive software in our firm I, I use comprehensive software once 
in my planning career. And that was to do my NAPFA plan before I started. And at that point, I swore I would never use comprehensive financial planning software because you spend so much time trying to massage the numbers into the person's life. Well, let's just start with a life and talk about your money. So one of our tools, a retirement analyzer, a thing that I love is really the the boxes that count, which is you know the, the income that's coming in, how much you save and how much you pay in taxes, and then the sort of take-home pay that you have left over to spend. And clients will really will really get sort of those four boxes. Yeah, my earnings have gone up. Let's try to increase the savings rate. Can we do anything to not down to taxes? Yeah, our spending looks a little um, a little extra demands this year because we're redoing the bathroom or something like that. But just talking about those four areas, rarely have I ever gone into line by line spending analysis, unless there's say a big you know, a credit card problem. And those people probably get referred out to someone that's better trained in, in handling those matters anyway. So, so spending is not that detailed, but still we're talking about spending. We're, we're talking about maintaining your lifestyle and can we maintain the current lifestyle and can we accurately portray now what your current lifestyle is? Yes, we can accurately without doing it line by line because the annual use of money is kind of a zero sum game. We account, we can account for all the moving parts and they're simple moving parts. You don't need big software with uh, 30 different spending categories to have that conversation. As a matter of fact, that would, that would pretty much scare me off from a financial planning relationship. I love the concept, as you know, of the bond ladder as a way of securing stable cash flow in people's retirement. But I just talk about that as a stable pantry of money. And the basic standard that we try to live up to is having uh, 15 years of stable money set aside to cover your, your lifestyle and to, to help protect you from the market declines that can happen from time to time. Uh, interesting that a luminary like, Bill, like William Bernstein believes that you ought to have 25 years of money packed away. He thinks that's the first step before you even start adding risk to it. But again, what he's really talking about in technical terms is asset liability matching. That's what zero coupon you know, treasury strips would be doing. We, we see the liability five years out and we have a targeting that. We do that with sort of a, an aggregate amount of mutual funds, but I call it the pantry of money. Now, I, I know that that's okay because I've, I've got a client couple that had a CPA firm together. He was, he was a financial services president of, of, of a local uh, corporation. She also was a, was a CPA with him. If I can use the concept pantry of money for a couple like that, I can use it for, for anyone. So the, these, are, these are sophisticated people that appreciate the term pantry. They go, yeah, we can talk about that because it's conversational a, a, about the money. We don't have to get into weeds. They care very much that, that their pantry is guaranteed. They really want to see federal insurance on, and they've got a lot of CDs and they like to have it insured in banks. But that's okay. That's a specific thing that, that's specific to them. But we get there's, there's this money that's going to keep you real protected for the ups and downs of the markets later on. So the pantry, the, the, the pantry idea for, for bond ladders is something we, we talk about that a lot with, uh, with all clients that are entering the practice. And my partner came out of the investment world uh, where they used to talk about the Monte Carlo. And she was dubious when she started our system. Meredith really you know, had some questions about that. She peppered me with a lot of questions. And she has come back to me on a, on a number of occasions saying, you know, I just thank you so much for teaching me about the bond ladder. I sit there with my clients. They look so happy and secure knowing that we've put this in place for them. She's really sold. She's really made that transition, really, really respects the approach that we've had that's, uh, that, that's tried and true. Right. And it, it's interesting, you know, we talk, uh, when you're talking about the pantry of money, it's not that you're dumbing things down. You're just making a concept easily understandable. It's not unnecessarily complicated like so much of the 
financial world seems to relish the complication that may be fine for professionals trying to impress each other, but it doesn't impress clients in my experience. Yeah. Pantry of food, you immediately put on the table. Pantry of money, it's immediately accessible for your needs. It's 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 immediate. It's 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 safe and it's it's ready to go. Right. That term can be applied in so many different ways. It can it can be applied to money that's coming from a bond ladder of U.S. Treasuries, which is the you know sort of uh, archetypical ACP. 15-year bond ladder, or a lot of that can be supplied from that guaranteed pension for the teacher who worked 30 years that makes up a lot of my clientele and that, that you were discussing earlier. There are a lot of different ways to not have to worry about where that money is coming from. And ultimately, that's what it's all about. I've talked a number of times about a client of mine who I had not heard from when the market was falling in uh, late 2008 at the start of the Great Recession, when every passing day brought news of another financial giant on the verge of collapse. And I, I thought, well, that's interesting that I haven't heard from this particular client. And I called and said, you know, the news has been pretty shocking lately. I just wanted to make sure you guys were all right. And he said in a voice of absolute calm, we're fine. We know where our money's coming from for the next 15 years. And that's all he needed to to know. It didn't matter that his his stocks were plummeting because he knew, you know, where his money was, you know, that for that household, he knew where their money was coming from for the next 15 years. It's because we didn't distract ourselves with trying to figure out, well, here's the exact amount of risk you want to take on, so our efficient frontier analysis says this is the most return you can get. People don't live like that. They want to know that their money's okay, which will lead them to, are they okay? So, yeah. Well, Chip, thank you so much. I really appreciate your joining us and look forward to our next conversation. Thanks so much. Okay, Ken. Pleasure. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Chip Simon, founder of Taconic Advisors with offices in Poughkeepsie and Saugerties, New York. There's a link to Chip's website in our show notes. This is podcast number 22 of Practical Wisdom from ACP Financial Advisors from the Alliance of Comprehensive Planners. ACP is a community of tax-focused financial advisors operating under a unique fee-only retainer model. For more than 25 years, ACP has trained advisors in the practices and tools of a comprehensive process rooted in the uncompromising values of fiduciary fee-only planning. Our members are pioneers and innovators who together have perfected a unique retainer-based, tax-focused, comprehensive approach, providing a distinct alternative in the financial planning marketplace. ACP offers a lower-cost associate membership for those who want to learn and apply ACP's methodology prior to becoming certified members. For more information, call 910-769-1569 or visit acplanners.org.